you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy The Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to a very spooky Gallo Cast. As you observe, we have one dead person and one animated person. Yes, Prince has joined us from somewhere beyond, and Ken of Ken and Barbie have joined us somewhere. It's great to hear you. Purple Rain. Love it. We talk about a little thing called life. What about you, Ken? What what words of wisdom do you have for us? Horses are just extensions of men, and shredding waves is a lot more difficult than people think. Okay. We may ask you to hold that thought (laughs) because I've got some gallo cast topics uh, for the both of you. If you want to try that, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, You guys are both business owners. I'm going to assume at some point in your professional life, you've called upon the talents and intellect of lawyers to help you in some form or fashion. And when you do that, it's sometimes called advice of counsel defense. So our good friend and ethical superhero, Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF himself, is in the middle of being on the witness stand where he has claimed that I really didn't say those things. Two, I really didn't do those things. And three, the lawyer said it was okay. I really wanted to use that intro to ask, where does the book stop? And does the buck stop with, I got a piece of paper from this lawyer saying I can do it or somewhere else. And if you guys have comments or thoughts on the direct and cross-examination of our good friend SPF, I'm open to hearing that too. Well, let her rip, so, guys. Yeah, this might be an overly technical answer. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Gio. But the buck stops with whoever wants to prosecute something and what they're trying to tie you up, to try you on. I think from a principled standpoint... Nick and I and our culture here is really built on a value of accountability and kind of extreme ownership of you should be responsible for as much as you can when you're personally trying to do something that's probably different. Anyone, probably including us, would take a different stance if you're defending yourself against potentially 27 life imprisonment sentences for $17 billion fraud. But I think we should all seek to be as responsible as possible. But this is a super interesting case. These types of things, like global scale grift, are they're like a guilty pleasure of mine, like the Elizabeth Holmes story and stuff like that. So it's really interesting to see this case and just how they're trying it and what they're going after. But obviously, to me, there's some mix of, oh, I didn't know what I was doing or I didn't think it was bad, right? That can be a defense. But also, ultimately, the prosecutors are not going to go after the lawyers for whatever, $70 billion of fraud or whatever it is. They're going after SBF. And I think that to to me, I think the jury's going to be deciding, did this guy rip people off or not? 
as much as the prosecutors are going to want to try to guide them to toward a technical decision. And they're going to decide whether his lawyers telling him that it's okay to do this really feels right or wrong. So we'll see how that turns out. It's is this on par with somebody pleading insanity? It's that type of a defense. You know what I'm saying? I think the question is, is it reasonable for somebody to rely on counsel? And it probably is, especially if it's something that's highly technical or it's outside of a reasonable expectation for what that person should understand. It seems like a little bit more of that sort of, he knew what he was doing. You know what I'm saying? Anything you read, whether it's the way he was demonized in the media or the way he was characterized in Michael Lewis's new book, which is way less uh, incendiary. He knew what he was doing. He knew the essence of his business and so forth. So I don't know the details of where he's claiming this, but it feels like it's a, a bit of a cop-out and a bit of a shifting of, of blame. He played that game super fast and loose. And irrespective of whether this advice of counsel defense works or not, the leadership, the buck stops with him at the end of the day, for sure. And I just... He was just, he seems like a guy, I just read the Michael Lewis book and he seemed like a guy who just was, you know, above it all, like smarter than your average bear, you know, in his own mind. And I think he felt like a lot of these rules didn't apply to him. And uh, yeah, I mean, there were just a ton of like, obviously a ton of uh, control failures and it's ultimately rooted in a leadership failure, you know? So I would say that, you know, the buck stops with him for sure. Can you have a control right. fail failure if you don't have any controls? Yeah, I, I would say the lack of controls is in itself a failure. You know what I'm saying? You have to have some controls in place. He was dealing with billions of dollars and he was just passing it from one pocket to the other. And he came up in that world. You know what I'm saying? He came up, I think he worked at Susquehanna and he worked somewhere else. So he knows anybody who's a trader is at a massive fund, like the funds he worked at, that there's all of this like compliance controls in place and all the, all the regulations that you have to navigate through. I get that crypto is like some, on some level, like not as highly regulated yet. But if you even look at what his entire angle was for the FTX exchange, he was trying to pull regulation into it. So it's not like he just didn't know about regulation and didn't know about rules that existed out there. He was trying to take advantage of the existence of those rules by applying them to the wild west that was the crypto space as to get more deal flow and be the de facto leading exchange. That was his strategic angle. So for him to have not put any controls in place, to your point, I just think is in itself a leadership failure, if nothing else, and a leader's there to control. So yeah, I think it is a control failure because the leader's not controlling the path and the the progression of the organization. So on the other side, of it, I think off? there's this. Oh, I just think there's an interesting thing back to your original question about the like the advice of counsel and whether you should lean on that. Something really interesting in this case is the massive recovery that like was achieved, like 77% of the funds were recovered. They were in the wrong place and you misappropriated them. And that's the main fraud that's being alleged is that he misappropriated the funds, moved them to Alameda and stuff like that. But he didn't like he misappropriated all of them. He didn't lose all of them. He only lost like a couple billion dollars. In that case, maybe the defense of that is no well, harm, no foul. Yeah, just little harm, little foul. It's a billion. Uh, but it's there. interesting, like him saying, "Hey, the lawyer said that technically moving these over into my hedge fund and promising them back would have been fine." That's different from he just bought like eighty-five million Lamborghinis with them, which may be a useful tack for the defense. But at the end of the day, like I was saying. 
I think that like a jury, like there aren't a lot of peers of SVF. There are a lot of people with these types of curls. Like I could probably be on the jury because I like, I feel like we're peers, but <laughs> that guy had a great curly head. But a jury of your peers, the- I don't know. There are a bunch of people like that are just, I don't know, teachers and they work at a grocery store and they drive a truck. And I imagine they're just going to be like, did this guy fall on the wrong side of some like foot foul or was he like stealing a bunch of money? Yeah. 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 That word that whatever Nick said is probably what it is. This is as serious as putting the soup spoon in the, to the side, as opposed to the middle, a top of the plate. This is, we're talking some serious violations here. <laughs> serious. Yeah. Unquestionable. Yeah. They, they might actually be worse than the soup spoon thing. It might be more like uh, using your butter knife to cut your steak. Yikes. No. Oh my gosh. Easy. That's beyond the pale. Okay. I wanted to visit with you guys about work with the following or on the, under the following areas, return to work or work from home. Both, I think have both sides have meritable arguments. I can see both sides, the merits of both sides. But I really want to ask you guys as business owners, recognizing that it's great to have everybody in the office all the time, but there's also merit in letting people work from home. And how do you, how have you guys balanced it, if at all, at Ethico? Yeah, it's been hard to balance. And I think it's changed a little bit, or at least my position has probably changed a little bit. For certain roles, they have to be in the office for sure. For certain roles, it's a little bit like more loose. And then there's others that are pretty much 100% remote, either due to a geographical constraint or just because of individual preference. I don't know. There's so many factors at play. We have we have these like several large rooms that everybody works in. And there's definitely like a distraction factor, especially to the extent somebody's doing like discretionary work. Uh, that distraction factor is an argument that, that people who want to work from home tend to use. We have put in place a policy that says if you're not in the office three days a week, you're fired. Just kidding. If you're not in the office three days a week, you don't have a dedicated desk anymore. That allows for a little bit more flexibility for when people want to come in the office and they can hotel into a desk and so forth. I don't really know what the right answer is. I think you've seen some organizations swing from one side of the spectrum to the other. And there've been a couple of CEOs who have gotten roasted. I, I'm a federalist at heart. This is my kind of cop-out answer, which the, one of the great things about being a federalist is you can cop out of any question. So get ready for that. But I think an organization should just be clear about what their culture is and what their expectations are. And employees are going to self-select in or out of that company. They're going to do it either by not taking the job there, or they're going to do it by moving on and finding a different place to work. So at some point, the free market is going to shake it out. I don't see us really going back to predominantly, quote unquote, 100% of people being in the office. It's just been too long for people working from home and getting used to those kinds of motions. Yeah, I just think, I, th- I think employers should really, to your question though, like how should employers approach it? I think they should have a true, they should get down to what they actually want, irrespective of what's going on in the marketplace and just be authentic to that. If you want everybody in the office, there are companies that do that. And there are some that are fully remote and they're bigger than us. So both can work, but I think where companies get in trouble is where they speak out of both sides of their mouths, or they say, this is what we're doing. And then they violently swing back the other way. I think that kind of wrecks the employee experience. What do you think, Gio? Yeah, I think the big thing here is like, it's about people, like everything else, like culture, like compliance and ethics. And if the people that you need to attract and retain demand a bunch of remote work, then at some scale, you're going to have to do that. If you're just like, 
I don't know, running an e-commerce shop and you just need one full-time person, you can probably find one person that will work in whatever format you want. But ultimately, like at scale, you're like, we're in a market, right? And not a market of exchange of goods, but a market of ideas and preferences, where if a bunch of people due to their generation or the region that you live in, or even like the division that you're recruiting in, want to be remote or don't care or have a preference to be in person, then we're, we like... We only have so much power to set a price or to say, this is what it must be. And you always have to pay with time, quality, or money. So you can wait a lot longer to find all the people that just come into the office or be fully remote or whatever, but it comes down to the people and what kind of, and there, there's a sea change and shift going on in these people and labor dynamics. We're seeing it in the UAW case. We're seeing it in people, labor organizing. We're seeing it in quiet quitting or digital nomads and all of this stuff that like the seas are shifting and changing. And as employers, we need to be smart about that. You need intelligence, just like we need risk intelligence and we need to elevate and actualize the human sensors in our organization for risk and risk management. We also need to have that sense for employee engagement and what do employees care about and what's happening on the recruiting front. And I know in our own experience, it's changed over time, right? Like middle of COVID, right after COVID now, I don't know how long, are we like a year or two and a half years out of COVID? I don't know. But that's changed and also changes by division. So I think you have to react to it. And I think that what the, like, the challenge is that things are moving more quickly. And also it seems like, and it feels like employers have less power to demand what they want. And that's a new muscle for a lot of leaders to say, hey, you know what? Like everyone, everyone should just be thankful that I give them a paycheck. And there's a new equation that we're playing in now. And you have to learn how to market your positions that way and build your culture that way and find attract. Let me go to a case that I pulled from the headlines that happened in September. And it's a company called DS Disco, and they do electronic data searches, largely employed by law firms to help them shift through large amounts of data. At a company event in over Labor Day, the founder and CEO apparently or is alleged to have uh, sexually harassed someone at a party. Three days later, he resigned to pursue other opportunities. Since that time, there's been a fair amount of reporting, largely in the Wall Street Journal, about the corporate culture. The thing that really struck me was out of a workforce of 600, fully 150 people signed a letter that went to the board of directors asking the board to not only investigate and assess the, what they believe was toxic culture, but for the board to lead a uh, revamping of that culture. Wow. And so I wanted to ask you guys, if you were counseling the board, what would you tell them that it means when fully one quarter of your workforce signs a letter that says we have a bad culture? And how would you counsel a board to lead that change if you've already fired the CEO? So to me, that sounds like a massive opportunity. If 25% of the people spoke up and said, we got to fix this thing, then there must be a massive problem that's probably affecting way more than a fourth of the company. And so the board really has an opportunity that they have, that they can take advantage of. It's a burning wick. Like it's not like an indefinite opportunity, but they have an opportunity to take swift action, tangible action, credible action that will prove to the workforce that A, their voice matters, B, the board takes very seriously the concept of culture and cleaning things up, and C, separates them from other organizations that people inside the organization have 
work at. So sometimes it's, if you buy like a massive fixer upper, you buy, you know, a house that hasn't been lived in a long time. It's a lot of work for sure. And it looks like a disaster, but you can make a couple of little changes that make it look way better. You cut the grass, you, you paint the house, right? There's a couple of like little things they could do to probably have a massive impact. And I think it's easy to look at a situation like this and be like, oh my gosh, man, the word it's over. This thing is rotted to the core. And I think you can flip that on its head a little bit and just recognize the opportunity that you have. And the opportunity comes from like the perceived improvement. That's what the game is. There's now a line in the sand. This thing is totally broken. We fired this guy. There's an event. They sent this letter. They can respond to that letter again with uh, a couple of campaigns, a couple of, a couple of simple things to really drive that forward and convince, influence, persuade the 600 employees that they're taken seriously and that their voice really matters. I think it's a huge opportunity for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good point. It is an opportunity, right? But maybe it's one of those things that you would never wish that you land there, right? Hopefully you always catch it before and don't slide that far. But also it's a crisis that you can try to turn into something positive and show people, hey, you know what? New leadership is going to be taking in this direction and we're not going to take our eye off this ball and stuff like that. Part of what came to mind as I was thinking of this is that this actually, this absolutely needs to be a change in the hearts of the people and leadership. And right. that leadership can be the culture carriers around the, the organization. Who do people in the front lines look up to and go ask, hey, what's going on with this thing? It certainly should be mood in the middle and the managers and figuring out how to get managers on board with this. Just like, you need to pick a side, choose this day uh, who you will align with, that old culture that the old CEO is doing or the new culture that we're going to be a part of and figure out the incentives and the coaching that goes along with that. And then obviously the new leader needs to be on board with it. But this cannot just be the board who may collectively spend 20 hours a quarter or maybe on the high end, 150 hours a quarter working on this company and guiding it and having oversight versus 600 people times spending 288,000 hours a quarter working there, you need a balance of focus and a cultural shift to happen. And it has to happen with a bunch of different people, not just the chairman and the board saying, hey, let's make sure we do this. Show me some KPIs. This is, you're really trying to achieve a transplant. This is not just like, why don't you take a little bit of Tussin and see if your throat feels better? You got to do like a major transplant of your circul circulatory system that is your ethics and compliance, that is your culture. And that needs to really flow throughout the organization. And if you do that, it can be a huge advantage. It can be a whole story about look at how far we fell and look at how far we've come and stuff like that. But it's not going to come by like putting a new poster on the wall and like sending around a new code of conduct. I probably should have asked this next question immediately after we talked about Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. But one question I get fairly often that I wanted to pose to you guys is, at what point should a startup or a new company put together a set of internal controls and a compliance program? You guys get asked that question? Yeah, we do. We do get that. Get asked that. I would say immediately. It doesn't. It's not a big lift to get something started. I think um, it's easy to get caught up in. I, gotta, I see a lot of people go into the, the seven elements and they just go down the list. You know what I'm saying? And it's, you need to take a Pareto approach to it. And the first thing to do is to get an enterprise-wide disclosure tool in place, some kind of way to start crowdsourcing this risk intelligence across the organization. That's a very simple one to get going. And you can start to layer on from there. 
it's not a big spend for a small organization to get something in place. I think regardless of your size, regardless of your org size, you have to keep in mind that you're competing with every other organization out there. And if you're going to, if you're going to attract like actually good talent, this talent is going to have a, a myriad of other options that are going to be organizations of higher, of bigger size, whatever. We have to understand what the, what the employee, what the employee's option set is and compete appropriately. Obviously pay is a, is a factor, but also the type of organization it is. And it's a fast moving organization and it's growing and it's a place where your voice matters. And it's a place where we have a commitment to a culture. Those are all factors I think that are super important. And it's to Gio's point about that transplant, it's way better to like, just stay healthy forever from when you're a little kid until you're old, than to have a triple bypass surgery and then have to get healthy after that. So laying that groundwork and making that a priority early when it's not a big lift, I think can do a lot to ensure that the culture when you're bigger is going to be maintained and that the apparatus that you're, that you've put in place is still there and can scale with the organization. Yeah. I think one way that I would think about it is if you're the CEO or the board, you need to do it not as soon as before you need to do it before you know that it's all getting done. So right. that, that is not when you IPO, that is not when you get your series B that's maybe when you have more than, I don't know, 10 to 40 people, like depending on how tight your management team is and how close you are to everything and stuff like that. You like to me, getting back to the SBF thing, there's never really deniability for you to say, yeah, you know what? Like we just didn't have an eye on that. And yeah, a bunch of people right. have been sexually abused for a few years. If you're like working in 20 by 20 office with two other people, you're probably close enough that you don't need uh, a bunch of risk assessments going on every quarter for those two people that work on your team. But as soon as it gets beyond that, you have good confidence that you know what's going on and really you need to set it up before that, you should put it in place. And the thing is like, it, it doesn't have to cost 200 grand. It doesn't have to cost 20 grand to do it. You could, you could be spending like 300 bucks a month or something and get some of this stuff in place and just build it from there. And that's a lot of, Nick and I have been at a couple of conferences in the past month, and that's a lot of what we have encouraged compliance and ethics leaders as we're talking about what's happening in this new era and how to get to compliance and ethics 3.0 and stuff is that you need to just get started. And waiting right. until you have a $400,000 budget to start your compliance program is absolutely a backwards way to do it. Also, I know this wasn't part of the question, but waiting to figure out how to manage AI in your compliance in ethics apparatus until the legislators in Washington, D.C. have figured out how to make regulations about it is absolutely backwards. If you right. start somewhere in a year, even if you start small, you're going to be further along. And if your company's growing, getting started and saying, hey, what are these pillars? All right, how do I get two or three of these? And we'll add a basic one or two next year and we'll have the basics in place. And then we'll get be getting a feedback loop, right? Growing is learning. Learning is growing. Getting that feedback loop of, hey, we need a little bit better on this. Let's figure out how to upgrade it. That's the way to do it because all these headlines that you see that we talk about here on the GalloCast and you can get by following any and all of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, all of these headlines are a bunch of people that said, we'll deal with it when we know it's a problem. But you know what? Like By the time your car is scraping into the guardrails and tipping over the edge of the cliff, it's too late to be figuring out how to steer. You got to steer before you crash. Yeah, if you wait for all the lights in the town to turn green until you leave your house, uh, you're never going to get off the porch. You know what I'm saying? You got to just get moving. No, I think that's worthy of Ken. See? I'm, I'm, Ken's I'm always saying stuff like that. Him today. I'm like, I'm yeah. on top of the world right now. I might keep this up. You know right. what I'm saying? This might be my new look. 
People are people it's were you, shocked man. to hear that this is a wig. This is a wig, you guys. Really? Yeah. I, I had no idea. <laughs> it I just feels just like your vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's one for you. Whistleblower complaint comes in. You have appropriate reporting mechanized. He goes up through the system. How do you advocate, or how do you, how would you counsel a company on their uh, interactions with the reporter or the person who speaks up? How do you, in, and then how can you use that strategy to really engender trust throughout your organization? We just did a roundtable on this exact topic recently. And I would air, I would go so far over the line. I would try to be as transparent as possible. I would share as much as I reasonably could, not trying to minimize my liability, which is this amorphous thing that kind of causes us to be super opaque. I'd be trying to share as much as possible. We've done it internally here. If something happens and somebody speaks up about something and we take action, we're absolutely sharing that with the reporter. And we're actually usually using that as an opportunity to take it as a cultural moment to share with everybody, to reinforce the, we want to celebrate somebody speaking up. We want to celebrate and we want to show and prove and get credit for as leaders that the culture that we're trying to build is real, right? And that can only happen if we're taking action when people are speaking up. So obviously there's always a bucket of stuff that you can't share that are going to be liability, tripwires, stuff like that. Obviously don't share that kind of stuff, but I would just say share as much as you absolutely can about the process, about what steps were taken, thanking that person for, for speaking up. There's this concept in life called fair process. And I think there's a corollary for this kind of a discussion. So fair process came out of this famous, um, I think HBR article written, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago or something. And the essential concept is that when you're driving change in an organization, the more, the more you can show transparency to the process, the more transparency you can show about the decision, the more people you can get involved in that decision, the easier the adoption of whatever the new change is, is going to be. Because people feel like they're part of it, you're going to get better ideas. There's a level of transparency where people aren't being subject to a new change. They're a part of that change. And I think it's interesting in the speak up discussion that we're essentially having here that we haven't adopted that fair process thing. Like... Our job is to activate human sensors in the organization, to crowdsource risk intelligence so that we can do our job. That's the job. That's one aspect of the job, right? So in order to do that takes persuasion. We have to influence people to do that. We already know all the research. It's the same answer every single year why people don't speak up and don't participate in this risk mitigation process. And it's because they don't, they're scared they're going to get retaliated against and they don't think something's going to be done about it. Those are the big two reasons. And those are the same big two reasons every single year. So if that's the headwind, if that's the, the impediment for us to get all of this risk intelligence to flow into our system uh, so we can do something about it and de-risk the organization, improve the culture, improve the bottom line, all those other positive things, uh, then it's our job to persuade folks that we need them and persuade them to expend that sort of discretionary effort that is foundational to them raising their hand when they don't have to. This report came out, I think it was from Ethisphere, that said 65% of people last year witnessed wrongdoing in their organization. And then you look at the NAVEX report or you look at our report and 1.5 or three reports per hundred. That is like a drop in the bucket relative to what's going on in the organization. So I think people want to speak up. They want to uh, be part of something. They want to be part of an organization that like values them, but they have to feel a, a part of it. You know what I'm saying? And there's a relationship between the employees and the organization 
that we can either feed and cultivate or there, or we can let die on the vine. Yeah. So I think the other side of that is there's certainly some things that prevent people from circling back to the reporter around risk management and liability. And legal told us that there might be a risk that we could get sued or something like that. I think also a lot of it is just capacity. Like teams are spread thin. They're doing too much manually. Their software doesn't enable them to scale that and automate that and stuff like that. And it's hard to make it part of their process because they're playing risk whack-a-mole all the time and trying to manage up into the organization and get managers on board and get ambassadors and interact with employees and stuff like that. I think a lot of it is just like, I think a lot of people we talk to about this, they're like, yeah, I'd love to do that. What should I not do to, in order to spend another two and a half hours a week doing that? And that, I think that just speaks to the need to be a better storyteller and a better yeah. advocate to the executive suite for your budget and have more facility with telling the story and illustrating the real return that we all feel in our hearts will come if we invest just a little bit more in compliance and ethics. We're not saying give me another 5% of revenue on this budget. We're saying like, give me another 0.3% of revenue next year to do a little bit more with this. We know that it's going to make a difference, but it's hard for us to like land that in the executive suite. But if we can do that, then it, it lets this thing breathe a lot more and it opens yep. you up to be strategic and be the leader that you know that you should be in the organization needs you to be. But that capacity constraint, that stuff is so manual, but it takes time to sharpen the saw and to adopt new software and stuff like that. So we're just, we just got to keep chugging away at this. Yep. I think that kind of functional work like capacity is something that keeps a lot of teams from doing this thing that I think a lot of people wish they could do and would be happy to do. What got you here is not going to get you there. And if you're not evolving, you're dying. Let me turn to another story from current events, and that's the University of Michigan football program. There are allegations that U of M electronically recorded during games teams playing along with their coaches sending the signals in, whether on offense or defense. Apparently, that's a no in college football. It's unclear. It's not an unwritten rule. There's some rule on it somewhere. But there's been a lot of commentary about this is not good sportsmanship. But here's the, I, and I use that as a way as an introduction to the following question. If you, and let's just stick with U of M and I'm a U of M grad. So I got. So be careful what we say here, Gio. If the football team, if it turns out the allegations are true and there's a sanction against the coach or the team, whatever the amount. And if it's also true, if someone cheats on an exam in the university, they're expelled. What does that say about the priorities of the university? And does the university have to treat the football team like they would a student who engages in unethical behavior that violates the code of conduct? No, they don't. They probably should, but they don't. And they won't. (laughs) Yeah, and they won't. Call me jaded. Just don't call me purple. But this is like a multi-billion dollar industry, just NCAA football. And something that I've heard them say in football, I think it's from Michigan, but it might be somewhere else. If it ain't making money for the program, it ain't exist. And if the coach is winning, they're probably going to let the coach, they're going to be like, ah, yeah, you know what? You got to go do some burpees and uh, maybe go sweep the parking lot for a little bit. All right. All right. You learned your lesson. 
what should happen. Yes, if someone's cheating, they're cheating. By virtue of hiding this thing that someone had to discover it, you're obviously doing something that you hope other people don't know you're doing, right? No, I'm not of the mind that if it's not illegal, if it hasn't been ensconced in legislation, then you can get away with it. Um, especially in the realm of sportsmanship, right? We got to figure out what standard we're looking at. But obviously, like, it's cheap. I mean, like, you're not winning by winning. You're winning by, like, espionage. But are, are they going to do the same thing that they do to a no-name freshman that gets caught using chat GPT when he's not supposed to? No, absolutely not. The, the coach has a bunch more power. And ultimately, a bunch of people, I'm sure, are going to be saying, you know what, we, we should really do some of this guy. And then so a bunch of people are going to say, yeah, the trustees, they really like this. And think about all the good that happened. Think about all the money that siphons out of football to support field hockey and to support the ping pong team. Like, we're doing a lot of good here. Let's not mess it up. That's probably what's going to happen. I don't really see, I don't know, what's, how could that possibly be, like, illegal, what they're doing? They're doing these signals out in the open. They're doing signals because for a reason, so What right? makes it illegal is the electronic recording. Apparently, if you get on a set of binoculars and watch them and during real time during the game, that you can steal. But if you record it, go back and study it, that's what makes it illegal. But if I, it, but I can't, I, but I am allowed to film what's happening on the field so I can study those plays. Yes. Yeah, it just seems a little silly to me. If you're can, not, can you voice record as you do it? All right, he's pulling on his ear. He just wiped his left eyebrow. Can you do that? Does that count as yeah, recording? I don't know. It's probably know. like it original seems, content, right? It seems like such a silly rule to me. It seems like, of course, that's being done. There's no way that's not being done everywhere. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, everybody's doing it. I'm sure everybody's doing it. Everyone is absolutely Everybody's doing it, defense. What's that? Okay. Every, everyone's doing it, defense. It's, it's just you know the what? reality Let's of it. See. You see this in, in, in a lot of sports where if everybody's on PEDs, then the incentive for an individual athlete whose, li whose life could be changed by being a top performer, that's an overwhelming incentive for them to bend those rules. I'm saying if everybody is on them to the extent that they probably are on. You know what I'm saying? I think you got to put costume these things Mark together. What'd you say, Tom? Is your second costume, Mark McGuire? <laughs> it's good work for that, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I think if, we're, if you're going to use, so I think these things have to go together, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a fan of coherence. If you're going to use the everyone's doing it defense, then what the corollary of that is, then you shouldn't get caught because everyone else got, didn't get caught doing it. True. So you're, then <laughs> you're point. guilty anyways because you got caught. <laughs> so if you want to be slick and you want to do the thing, hey, everyone's doing it, then you better get away with it. So... If we don't catch you, it's fine. It's your your buddy cop letting you off for a ticket. Never happened in my life, by the way. But if you get away with it, it's fine. But if you get caught, you got caught. So then you deal with it. You're guilty either way. Yeah. Maybe that's the real sin here. You entrusted this entire operation to this guy who they're paying 55K. Right. And he seemed to be pretty sloppy about it because he got caught. Maybe that's the answer. I'm kidding. But I don't, I don't know enough about this rule. I don't know how long this rule has been out there. It seems silly to me. It just I just can't imagine that football program was the only one doing this. There's just no way. Okay. Seems they're the only program uh, honest enough to catch their team doing it and <laughs> consider a, a, a result, a fine. Yeah. But again, call me jaded. Uh, this, what's going to happen to the coaches is going to be, they'll probably get hung out to dry if that's what seems, thinks that's what they need to do in order to save face. I don't know. This summer, we had a fairly high-profile whistleblower in the sports world involving the U.S. men's soccer team. 
And the mother of a player who was benched filed a complaint against the head coach. The complaint was that the head coach had physically abused his then-girlfriend, now wife and mother of his four children, 35 years ago when they were dating. She was on the record as saying the reason she turned him in was to get back at him for not playing her son in the World Cup. I had a daughter, so I had very little contact with Little League and other nefarious organizations where such things go on. But it was clear to me that the whistleblower came forward in bad faith. Yeah. Now, the allegation may have had merit, but once again, it was 35 years ago to a woman who he subsequently reconciled, married, and had, and still is married to today. How do you counsel a company or how do you deal with an allegation made in bad faith? So first, I got to define terms here. Is bad faith that you had a motivation other than like pure justice for something wrong happening? Or is bad faith your... Re- I've always taken bad faith to mean like you're reporting it. You're trying to get somebody in trouble, but it didn't really happen. Okay. That's certainly one approach. Just like the situation here is she knew of something bad. It was bad. It did happen. She didn't talk about it for a long time, but then she started disliking the guy and then reported it. Right. I would say applaud her and say, I'm fine. I'm glad you finally came to your senses and realized what a bad guy he is. Thank you for reporting this because this is terrible. By the way, your son shouldn't have played in the world cup. Like he was, he wasn't that good, but I'm glad you actually told me about the bad thing that the coach did. Yeah, I wouldn't. I think I think you're going to get bad. If you're catching all the fish, you're going to catch some boots in that. And you're going to catch some old tires in that. If you have something that allows people to speak up, you're going to get bad faith reports. In general, what I would say is that you have to take the good with the bad. And every allegation should get investigated. And you're going to get some in there that are going to be erroneous or superfluous or bad faith, whatever. And you just have to run all those things through the process. So I think it's a good sign if people are making, if an organization is seeing bad faith reports, because it's an indication, again, depending on what the reporting rate is and what that's been doing, you're probably getting more visibility into the type of stuff that is top of mind out there. And it's all just data. Geo says this a lot. And so I'm stealing it from him, but it's all data. So is it an opportunity to retrain? Is it an opportunity to actualize more, more middle managers? Is it an opportunity for you to identify a bad actor within your organization, the person who in bad faith is trying to take advantage of this well-intending system, this well-intended system that has been put in, in, into place? There's some opportunity that like comes from it. And I've been on this tip lately because I've been watching these, these YouTube shorts about these. Have you seen these poker shorts? I love these. This is, these guys have a little camera on their chest and they're playing poker in these cash games and they're filming them all. And like when they're, whenever it's a good hand, they'll chop it up and make it into a cool video. And I've just gotten like super addicted to these. And I was watching one last night and this thing in poker where it's like, if you win with seven, two, which is the worst hand in poker, if you win and you show it, you get money from everybody else who's playing, you get 50 bucks or something like that. And it just reminded me that you can win with whatever you got. It's just all about how you play it. And so anything that's coming through that system is an opportunity for you to do something with, to push your agenda forward or push the achievement of your mission forward. And if that mission is providing a, creating a culture of integrity, then you can use these bad faith things as examples and hold those up as saying, this is not what this line is used for, or this is not what this is intended for. Yeah. It's just all opportunities. And again, 
I'm saying that because I'm addicted to the, to the YouTube shorts, but I'm also saying it because there are like orders of magnitude improve levels of improvement that we can make to the participation of the human sensors, like I was talking about before, and to us closing this gap between this aspirational culture that we're espousing, the words on the wall, the words on our values page or our code of conduct, and the actual culture that's being lived out. There's hacks that we can do with information and with examples like this of these bad faith actors to show our employees that we don't stand for that. And we're actively trying to close that gap. No, that's not your actual question. I just think it's inevitable. It's inevitable that people are going to take PEDs. It's inevitable that they're going to be filming signals. And it's inevitable that you're going to get folks as your organization grows who are going to make bad faith reports. You just have to roll with it all. Okay. Gents, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But as always, it's been a ton of fun for me. I am glad we had our special guest appearances from the dead and from the movies. Can't wait to see what we come up with next time, gents. All right. Thanks for having us, man. This is fun. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Be great. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the GalloCast. I hope you'll join Nick and I in January where we get back together for another edition. It's been a ton of fun bringing this podcast series to you. It's uh, really more than uh, fun than a barrel of monkeys recording it with these guys. They're so great together. And I hope you get a sense of uh, what they're like from this podcast. If you'd like to see the video version of this, check out my YouTube channel, the Compliance Podcast Network, under the podcast GalloCast on YouTube. I hope you will have a very safe and joyous holiday season and new year. We will look forward to visiting you with you in 2023. If you haven't done so, I would appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on uh, iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings and get out the word about the um, GalloCast beyond the compliance community. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you in 2023.